we learn that, that uh, we can learn contentment. And uh, you know, as we look at Philippians, it's, it's such an interesting book. Paul's writing the Philippians from jail, and yet the main message he's teaching them is the, how to have right thinking and to have joy through having right thinking, because the way we think impacts the way we act and the way we feel. And so it, it really is this crazy thing that he writes them and teaches them about joy from prison. And not only that, that when he was there, as we go back and, and look for a moment, uh, he, he was there on his trip. When he first went, he met Lydia and her family, and they believed and were baptized. Then he cast a demon out of a slave girl. This has all happened in the book of Acts. Um, then he and Silas were stripped and severely beaten with rods publicly and imprisoned, uh, though they were Roman uh, citizens. So in spite of that, when he writes to them, he has these fond memories of his time. <laughs> and you look at it you say, what, what was so fond about being publicly stripped and beaten? How could he be encouraging them to be happy, and how could he be bonded to them? Is because of their response. Um, it mentions about his suffering. He said, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, you know we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So they, though they had that conflict, they preached the gospel. These people believed, and then after they left, the, the, apparently the church was formed. Uh, and Paul writes back to them. Before he goes, though, he meets the Philippian jailer. They're in prison. They're singing. They're, the story about how their chains fell off. The jailer's going to kill himself, but they say, no, don't kill yourself. Uh, let us tell you about God. He believes, and he and his family are, are baptized. And then sometime later, the, the church is formed. So um, very much like our lives Paul learns how to be content even uh, when he's being publicly beaten and later when he goes to jail and then he's released and later he writes this letter to them from jail. And we learn from Paul that our joy doesn't need to be dependent upon our circumstances. Um, But what about you? Do you find your joy is dependent upon circumstances? I know for me, often it is. And I need to go back and change my thinking and remember how God has used all the difficulties in life for good. Many Christians have said 95% of their growth in their Christian life happened through the difficult times when they were struggling, when they were suffering, when things weren't going right. And yet, as soon as we get into difficulties, the first thing we want is, God, get me out of here. But we need to learn from Paul and learn from our trials that we can trust God and we can have joy in the midst of our circumstances. Well, let's pray as we look at Philippians 2 today. <coughs> Lord, I do just ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to each person today through your word, Lord, that you left us this interaction between Paul and the brothers and sisters at the church in Philippi, you, you left it to be a help to us today, to inspire us, to teach us, 
to help us get our thinking right so that we can have joy even in the midst of severe difficulties. And Lord, we just know that that's that's impossible apart from you and your Holy Spirit. But Lord, we thank you that you are so great, you're able to do that. So teach us today, Lord, open our ears. Holy Spirit, guide me in the words that I speak and help us uh, learn from this letter that you've left for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. So also in uh, Philippians, as we review, uh, Paul thanked them for partnering with him, and they partnered through prayer. They were always praying for him. Three times they gave to his financial needs. Relationally, they sent Epaphroditus to take, of, take care of his needs and check on him. Many think that in those days, uh, in the jails, somebody had to come bring you your food. Um, and so likely that's what Epaphroditus did, but also Paul was concerned about the Philippians and he was greatly encouraged to have one of the brothers there come and tell him what was going on. That was a huge blessing to him because he'd been bonded to them through those trials from being publicly beaten and yet preaching the gospel and then seeing Lydia and her family, the jailer and his family come to Christ and then later after he leaves, a church is formed. So he was bonded to them. He had a special bond, I think in large part because of the trials he went through. And I think in our own lives, if we'll look at it, that often if we will open our hearts to what God is doing in difficulties, that he'll use difficulties to bond us to people. Even in our marriage, I know with Helen and I, we've, we've had fights and disagreements, and as we've worked through them and understood each other and forgiven each other, we end up afterwards being more in love than, than ever. And it doesn't seem possible. But we see that in the natural world. When somebody breaks a bone, I broke my wrist. And when it healed, they say that place where it was broken is stronger than it was before it was broken. So it happens in the natural world, and God does it supernaturally in, in our relationships as well. They also partnered with him in ministry, starting this church after he left. So his, the purpose of the whole book was he wanted to thank them for their partnership to encourage them to think right and to be joyful even in the midst of circumstances. Uh, again, he's writing them from prison, teaching them to be joyful. And then there's a few, uh, you'll see these verses aren't very long, there's a few little spots where it seems like he's addressing problems that he's heard or that maybe he thinks are possible to happen. And because he loves them, he wants to steer them away from those problems and, and prevent them. Uh, and so that uh, in the, the first verse, some of the principles we saw was that his circumstances uh, did not dictate the amount of joy in his life. It was his relationship with God and the way he'd learned to think about life gave him joy. Also, he, his identity, he saw himself as a servant of Christ and a servant of God's purposes. And that's what ordered and directed his behavior is his identity was, I am alive to serve Jesus, to serve his church. And that made a huge difference. And he also, he, he calls himself a saint, calls them saints, which just means a holy person. Um, that he realized through Jesus, he was cleansed and made holy, and so were they. That was part of his identity. It needs to be a strong part of our identity. 
And then we ask this key question, you know, where do we find lasting joy in our lives? And so often we, we try to find lasting joy through, through things that maybe just provide a moment of joy through some accomplishment, working really hard on some project or to get some award. And then we get it and there's joy, but the next morning we wake up and sometimes there's depression because we say, oh, Man, if I want to feel that joy again, i got to go through all that work and be successful. <coughs> and then I'll have that little bit of joy. Um, so, you know, not through our status, not through our accomplishments, not through making money. We try to find it many ways, but we need to learn from Paul. He found it in Christ, in his relationship with Christ, in his relationship with people, with the other believers in particular, and then in ministering, meeting the needs of others, both Christians and meeting the needs of non-Christians as he preached to them. And those are the things in our lives as well. If, if you think, just take a moment now, close your eyes and think, how much joy do I have? If I, if I thought, pictured my coffee cup and I thought, how much joy do I have? That represents the joy in my life. Is your coffee cup a third filled? Is it halfway filled? Is it filled to the top and overflowing? That's what God desires. He said, he, Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the full, life more abundantly. Um, and if it's not full and you want to fill it up, think for a moment, what am I looking to bring me joy? Am I looking to the things Paul looked at? Am I looking to my relationship with Christ? Is that a treasure to me? Do I look to my relationships in Christ with people, God's people, to bring joy? Am I looking to, uh, with relying upon Christ and working with people to do God's ministry to help others? That's where Paul got his joy. So if your cup's not full and you want more, let me encourage you, to, like Paul, look to Christ and through Christ to people and ministry in Christ for your joy. So that leads to Philippians 2, and we've talked about this passage as being uh, a breathtaking view of Christ. And actually, we're going to talk about that in verses 3 through 11. But first, he opens this passage uh, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. Paul says, If you have any encouragement, any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's an interesting literary technique he uses here. Basically, I, I could say, Stan, do you find any encouragement from your relationship with Christ? Any, just the, any. Do you? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Luis, do you have any fellowship with the Spirit? Any interaction and blessing from the Spirit? Just any in your life? Yes, yes. All right. John, do you get any comfort 
from the love of Christ, knowing that He loved you so much He died on the cross for you? Does, does that comfort you at all? Okay, yeah. All right. Helen, do you have any tenderness and compassion in your life because of Christ? Yes. The answer is obvious to all of these. It's like the saying we had, I don't hear people say it as much anymore, but in growing up, if something was really obvious, we would say, yeah, is, is the Pope Catholic? Okay, I mean, it's just the most obvious thing. Oh, I did. What we say now is, duh. <laughs> okay. I think that's what Paul's saying. Duh, yes, of course. Of course, all of you get encouragement from being united. You get comfort. You get fellowship with the Spirit. You have tenderness and compassion in your life because of Christ. He says it's so obvious. And he says, if that's true, which it obviously is, then what does he want? He says, if that is true, obviously true, then make my joy complete by being united, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Unity was so important to Paul. And later in the book, he he encourages, work out these problems. Help these ladies that are having some difficulties. Work it out. Okay? He knows that conflict's inevitable. It takes work to, to work through conflict. But we must do it because unity is important. Because it brings glory to God. And the way we relate one to another is a testimony to the world of God's power. So it's so important to God. So it's, he's basically saying, you've just got to be united. So in my Harlan Revised Version, the HRV, I translate those verses. You must be unified in your thinking, in your love, in spirit, and in your purpose. You must be unified. That's what Paul's saying here. It's so important. So if there's somebody you're in conflict with now and it's not resolved, please work at it. Resolve it. It will be so good for you. It will be so good for the other person and it brings glory to the church and to God. So be unified. I recently read this book or parts of it, When the Church Was Family by Joseph Hellerman. And he says this, One of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is your willingness to resolve conflict with others. Ooh, that's that's a little touchy there, isn't it? (laughs) Fitting a little close to home. Because none of us like to be involved in conflict. But are you willing? Do you has Paul it's talking all the time about our thinking? You need to have right thinking is the key to right behavior. And so Paul would say, if you understand how important unity is to God and to His body, then you'll work at it. You'll be willing to endure the difficulty and the awkwardness of resolving a conflict where it appears somebody has something against you or you've done something to hurt them. And so you'll take initiative to go and get it worked out. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. Again, would you close your mind? Close your eyes. Open your mind, but close your eyes. <laughs> yeah. And think. If that was true for me, where's the level of my spiritual maturity? 
if one of the greatest signs of it is my willingness to resolve conflict. And if you, God's saying to you, it's an area you need to work on, would you just pray right now and tell God, Lord, help me. I, I want to be mature. I want to please you. I want to live my life in accordance with your word. Those are beautiful prayers that he hears and, and will answer. Amen. So that's how Paul begins with this strong appeal to unity. And then we see what I call this breathtaking view of Christ. And I, I love that word, breathtaking. I, I was thinking in my own life, when have I had a breathtaking experience? And two that came quickly to my mind was uh, the first time I, I was going to, driving from Colorado up to Yellowstone National Park. And I grew up in Ohio, but I had a friend that his parents grew up in Colorado, and he went to school in Colorado. And through him, I discovered national parks and outdoors, and I was converted. Uh, uh, and so I loved going to national parks. And so it was going with him, and we we're going to Yellowstone National Park. And he said, oh, on the way, we'll pass by the Grand Tetons. And I kind of vaguely remembered seeing a picture and thinking, oh, I thought that picture looked pretty awesome. But he, he knew about it, and he just couldn't wait till I saw it. So we're driving, driving, and then at some point we, uh, and you go to the Grand Tetons first, and then you go north to Yellowstone. And we came over the top of this hill, and there were the Grand Tetons, covered in snow in June, and the Teton Lake in front of them reflecting their beauty. And literally, my breath was taken away. I, I didn't know that there was going to be this view as we came over the hill. And I look over, and there's my friend in the passenger seat just smiling at me and saying, awesome, isn't it? It was breathtaking. Another time I remember in college, my roommate was a physics major, and on weekends he'd go on Saturday nights, he'd go up from 1 in the morning to 3 in the morning, and you, he, had a, he was able to use the giant telescope they had there. So he invited me up. He said, you got to come. And so I went up there at 1 in the morning, and they had, so it's a 20-foot-long telescope, and there's a little sight scope on the side. And he said, well, look through that. And it magnifies, and, he, and it showed. I looked in it, and there were two stars in it that were just hazy. But I looked outside, and, and the whole scar, so we're at 7,200 feet away from the city lights. So that night, there were just more stars than I've ever seen. But on the scope, he's just looking at two of them. And then he said, now look in the big eyepiece. And I looked in that eyepiece, and there were as many stars in that little eyepiece, which was showing where those two stars were. The two stars were, and I looked in that, and it was unbelievable. It was like the whole sky had been condensed just into that eyepiece. And I lost my breath. Wow, what an incredible universe. And with a naked eye, I couldn't even see those two stars. And this passage to me is breathtaking in, in the same way. It gives us a glimpse of the person of Jesus and why he has transformed people's lives and why Jesus has transformed nations and villages and people because of his incredible love. Let's read this passage. 
Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's interesting is they look at this in the Greek, they basically said this is uh, most likely a hymn or a song or a poem because of the characteristics of, of the language. So it's this incredible uh, song or poem that's written about Jesus. And as we first look at this, Paul starts by saying, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And this, we've defined humility in the past as this understanding that all that you have, your gifts, abilities, skills that you've developed, are all because of God's favor in your life and are for the purpose of serving others, helping others, and bringing God glory. So it's an understanding that all that I have is from God and is for others and it's for God's glory. Uh, Some people think humility is just feeling bad about yourself or putting yourself down. No, it's realizing that who you are and everything you have is because of God. Every good thing in your life is a gift from God. Even the skills you've developed is because God enabled you to develop and gave you perseverance and discipline. So it's giving God glory for everything in our life and acknowledging that it came from Him. So he says, consider yourself in humility, realize uh, and consider others as more important or better than you. Now that has got to be one of the most difficult challenges in the whole Bible. Consider others Not just consider others, but consider them better than you. Wow, we're all tend to be so selfish and think of ourself. You know, somebody once said, everywhere I go, there I am. How can I not help being selfish or self-centered? Yeah, it makes sense. But here he says, no, consider others in your thinking. Consider, think about others as more important. Okay, and then... It's almost like he backtracks, realizing, well, that's, that's a doozy for people. He says, well, you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, but this highest standard he calls us to is considering others better than ourselves. And kind of the idea of, well, start by at least considering their interests, right? But ultimately, consider their interests better. Well, how can we ever do that? And Paul answers by giving us this breathtaking view of Jesus. He answers, how can we do this? It's impossible in the flesh, but it's the idea that the example of Christ is powerful. And we see that in our life. Hearing about something is one thing, but seeing it is something totally different. Um, I remember the first time when I was in college, I uh, stayed for a weekend with a, a family 
that the husband was a Christian counselor, and it was the first time I'd ever lived with a family where Christ was the head of the home, and that all of them loved Christ, and just the obedience of their children, and the love of the husband and the wife, and how they were considerate of each other, it blew my mind away. I'd heard about great families, and I came from a really good family, but seeing that family, wow, that was the difference. The exa- an example is so powerful. For Helen and I, one of my friends from college, we went to visit him before we had any kids, and they had f- three kids, uh, five kids already, and we were blown away. Their kids were, they came up and talked to us, and, and Helen remembers, oh yeah, one of them, I told, they were doing something I thought they weren't supposed to do, and so I told them not to do it, and they immediately stopped doing it. They even listened to me. So we immediately went to our friends and said, how did you raise kids like this? It's because the example, an example is so powerful, and that's what Paul gives us. He points us to the example of Christ, and he says our attitude should be like his, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He became a man. He went from God and being worshipped by the angels and seeing God's will done perfectly in heaven. And he came to earth where that wasn't the case. Where people from his birth were already trying to kill him. Some have said, you know, going from God to being a human being would be like a human being transforming and becoming like an ant. Um, just in, but, but with God, it's even a greater jump than that. But he was willing to let go. He didn't hold on and say, no, I'm God. I'm God. I'm worshipped by the angels. I will not be a man, a lowly man in their terrible, sin-sick world. He didn't grasp on, he didn't hold on to his right to be God. But he said, no, I'll let it go because of my love for men. I will go down and become a man. I'll humble myself and stoop low. And I will go into their world. And it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross. And then it says, because of that, because he humbled himself, God exalted him. And we see that principle in our lives today. If any of us will humble ourselves, then God will exalt us. We'll humble ourselves and serve him, serve others, be others-centered. God inevitably brings blessing upon us. He exalts us in some way. But I want to talk about this idea that God, Jesus was God, and he let go of that and was willing to humble himself and come to earth. That concept, which is sometimes called the incarnation, um, uh, the carn, coming from, I think of carne asada, the flesh. He became flesh, all right? The incarnation, God becoming flesh, becoming man. What an incredible idea. And it's an idea that has changed the world makes me think of, uh, and also this idea that God didn't just create the world and then step back 
and watch to see what happens. But he was involved in every person's life we see in the Bible, and he's concerned about every person and stays connected. There was once a Bible study I did where we studied every book of the Bible, and there was a picture for every book. And I remember Genesis, part of the picture was Jesus in handcuffs with the chain going around the earth. And it was the idea, that idea to communicate Jesus and God didn't just create the world and then step back and watch. But Jesus was intimately chained, linked, he, that he by intention, by purpose, stayed linked and concerned about people in the world and what would happen. He didn't sit back. The, the last word you would describe Jesus was aloof. I mean, look at the way he interacted with his disciples. For three years, every day, he went everywhere with them. He was intimately involved in their lives. He, was he an outsider? No, he was totally Jewish. He was born in a Jewish community, and he was totally inculcated in that culture. He totally entered the man culture, the world culture. He was God. He could have easily, and maybe you could say he deserved to just stand back and be treated as God and let people serve him. But he didn't come to serve, or to be served, but to serve. So he wasn't aloof. He was the opposite. He was totally involved. And because of that example, Christians throughout history have done incredible things. I remember reading my favorite missionary biographies called Bruchko about this man, Bruce Olson. Um, it's, it's actually a story when I've given it to people, I say, well, it's a great book, but I don't really recommend doing what he did, going at 19 by yourself to a, a, a violent Indian tribe in South America. But God blessed his efforts nonetheless. But one of the things that he did, he, he learned the culture, he began to dress like them, he wore a little loincloth like the rest of the Indians. Um, he slept in these teepees like they did. He, when he presented the gospel, he sang it like they did in their culture. And at the end of the book, it ends by saying, and the Motoloni Indians, when they think of Jesus, they think of Jesus as being barefoot and wearing a leather loincloth because Bruchko was that example to them. He totally entered their culture in a way that they could understand who Jesus was and what he was like. One of my favorite scenes in the book is everybody has some form of pink eye in the village or everybody's getting it and he knows what it is, is and he's trying to figure out and he realizes if he just gives them medicine that, that, uh, that will kind of buck the way their system works and, and it would show dishonor to the witch doctor. So he goes to the witch doctor and the witch doctor's treating some, doing an incantation over somebody who's got this red eye, pink eye. And while he's there, Bruchko goes on the other side of the witch doctor and takes his finger and puts it in the eye of this person with pink eye and then reaches up to his own eye and smears his finger into his own. And so that now he for sure is going to have this infection. And sure enough, he comes back the next day and his eye's all pink. And he takes out this antibiotic ointment and he puts it on his finger, or he puts it on the finger of the witch doctor and tells the witch doctor to put it in his eye. 
And so the witch doctor does, and he comes back the next day, and the redness is already almost all the way gone. And through that, the witch doctor then began giving this to all the people. And because he showed such honor to the witch doctor, the witch doctor ended up coming to be a follower of Christ. But he was willing to sacrifice his own health. Would you do that? Could you see yourself putting your finger in somebody's eye that had pink eye? When I thought about it, I said, oh, Lord, I don't think I could do that. (laughs) And then one of the most moving examples that I've seen with my own eyes in my life was when we were in um, Jingxi in southern China with the Zhuang. Uh, Helen had befriended a guy who was an artist, and she's an artist as well. And I can't remember all the details how they met up, but she'd seen some of his drawings and then heard that he was sick, and she went to visit him. And then she came back and said, I don't know what's going on, but his family, they're all working and they're busy, and I think there's broken relationships because he's just up laying in his bed and nobody's tending to him. And it's, it stinks really bad. They don't... He, when he defecates, doesn't seem like anybody wipes him. And she said, so, so I had to wipe him and clean him up. And so we went to visit him. And I, again, yeah, he was just up on the second floor bed under the mosquito net. And it was really stinky. And he was so happy to see us. But he was clearly dying. And there was Helen. And she, again, wipes this man who she's only known for a few weeks. And I thought, why, why, would, why would she do that? Why would anybody do that? And it's because she had seen this breathtaking example of Jesus Christ and his willingness not to hold on to his rights and say, I deserve to have a comfortable life. But she was willing to let go of that and give up her rights her, her perceived uh, right we Americans so often have to live a comfortable, carefree life. And, now, and then I look over and there she is with the fingernail clippers. And because he hasn't been wiped, his fingernails are all just clogged with feces. There she is with a sanitary wipe, wiping his hands and using that fingernail clipper to clean out all of his nails. And I got to see again that breathtaking view of the love of Christ, the example of Christ. And that impacted me greatly. Um, A few years later, um, we had been on the high school campus, and through some interesting circumstances, uh, Helen was able to be with a group of like 30 girls and was talking to them about the gospel. And... um, a number of them showed interest, and she in, invited those that wanted to learn more to come to our house. And there were seven girls that began coming to our house every Sunday uh, in the morning when they got up. They, they were in school f- every week. They stayed in the dorms until Saturday morning. They got off at 10, and they'd come to our house, and we'd uh, teach them the Bible and have lunch, and then they'd go to their homes and go back to school Sunday morning. Um, and there were seven of them, and they eventually all seven got baptized and believed and uh, were really supporting one another and truly walking with the Lord. Uh, but very quickly, we, one of the girls missed, and we tracked her down, and her name was Huang Hui. 
and uh, she told us that she had been diagnosed with leukemia. So when she came, um, we all prayed for her, um, but we were heartbroken just within a few weeks that we heard that she had died. And uh, I should have asked Helen about the details, but I just remember, I think we came back from, we were gone for a while, um, and we came back, and we heard that day, or that we heard then that she had died and was being buried that night. And so we just felt, well, we, we just have to be there. Um, we don't know what we're going to do. We, and her parents don't believe. And so, uh, so a local believer told us, well, whatever you do, don't tell the ta- You're going to have to get a van to take you there, a little uh, minivan. Don't tell the driver that you're going to a funeral because they won't take you. There's a great fear of death. And so we had to just tell the driver this is the location that we want to go. And then we had to have him park way out the road so that he wouldn't see any of the ceremonies because if he saw that it was a funeral, he would leave. So we parked out at the road and we walked all the way into their village. And the family was so happy to see us. But the, her mother was, her grandmother was a witch doctor and they had arranged a, a funeral at at a certain place, and they were following all the traditional customs, but we just felt we needed to be there um, just to show our love for her and love for the family and the loss of uh, their only daughter. And so at, at one point, we were out in this field, and there was these beautiful karst mountains all around us, and at a certain, like the father was really nervous. He was pacing back and forth and looking at his watch. And at a certain time, he'd been told by the witch doctor that he needs to bury, put his daughter in the casket and nail it shut at a certain time. And that if you don't do it just right, the person will not get into heaven and their spirit will roam throughout the world, uh, causing trouble to all the relatives. So he was very concerned about this. And so at a certain moment, he looked at me and gave me the sign. He said, let's pick her up. And so she was on a, a plastic tarp. I remember picking her up, and apparently she'd been laying there for a long time because it was, it was like a, a goo or gel that was underneath her. But we just picked her up, and we put her in, and then nailed shut the, the, the casket. And I just remember thinking, wow, I don't, this is crazy. What am I doing? And I remember just having a sense in my spirit, I'm following Jesus' example. That's, that's what I'm doing. And that Jesus didn't stand aloof. That's what I would have liked to done. I would have liked to just have stayed in Jingxi and let them bury her. But the spirit in us said, no, Jesus did not create the world and stand aloof and just watch. He got in there. He got his hands dirty. He rubbed shoulder on shoulder with people. And so that's what uh, we did that night. Even though we knew she was going to get buried where the witch doctor said she needed to get buried at the right at a certain time and all that, but um, that the Spirit spoke to us. That's what we, we needed to do. I think of um, other, one example I, I heard about was there was a church where it was in the late 60s, and there it was a Presbyterian church, a very formal church, and it was during the worship, and a hippie came in, and he was barefoot and torn bell-bottom jeans, and he walked down the aisle right to the front where the worship band was playing. And as he came down, everybody started looking at him because everybody was in suit and tie. 
And he came up, walked all the way to the front. They didn't know what he was going to do. And the front seat was right there, and it was a giant church. And he got to the front row, and then he moved forward a little bit, and he sat down and crossed his legs on the floor to enjoy the music. There was kind of a big sigh of relief. <laughs> then they noticed the chief elder, who's the oldest elder uh, in his 70s, very traditional. They see him slowly walking down the aisle. Everybody's like, oh, no, this, this is not going to be pretty. <laughs> and he walks down. Every eye is on him, though the music's playing. And he gets to the front row. And he bends over to the men. And he sits down in his three-piece suit and crosses his leg right next to the hippie and enjoys the worship with him. Why would he do that? It's because he had seen this breathtaking view and example of Jesus Christ. He'd seen and understood Jesus did not grasp it. He didn't hold on to his right as God in the worship of the angels, but humbled himself, was willing to become a man and enter the world. And so he too was willing to humble himself to make a poor young hippie feel at home. That's the Jesus Christ that we follow. We follow his example. And it's lived out in many different ways. I remember in high school uh, playing football. I was, played offense, but our, um, we always looked over and the defensive team was always having fun. And we never, we never were. We were always just working on blocking and and they always had fun, and then we remember, we loved their coach, Dan Bomonti, Coach Bomonti, and he was about, oh, I think he was in his mid-40s, and one day, Coach Bomonti came out, because uh, he said, he told us the day before, he said, tomorrow I'm going to show you guys some things, you're just not getting it on, on how to do a few things, and so the next day he comes out, and there he is, dressed in his old football uniform, and so it's 20 years ago. It was when the helmets had these big bubbles over the ears. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And the face mask was this just little thing, a plastic made of gray plastic. And everybody just laughed and laughed. He just looked so funny in this old suit. And there he was. And so then we had this scrimmage. The offense came over, and, and he lined up at tackle. And he's always telling about this thing called the swat and swim. Is when a defensive tackle, he... He hits the guy on the offense, and then he hits him like this. He swats him, and then he swims to get around him and then tackle the coach, or tackle the quarterback. So on the first play, he does this. He knocks the tackle like that, swats him, swims over him, and he tackles the quarterback. Here he's in his mid-40s. Everybody goes crazy because he's in his gear, and he did it in that old equipment with these funny black spikes. And he was a legend. To this day, when my friends from high school get together, we talk about the day Coach Bomani wore his old uniform and showed us how to do it. Why did that appeal to us so much? It was that idea. Though he wasn't a believer, he was nonetheless following that beautiful example of Jesus Christ, of not standing aloof and just watching, but getting his hands dirty, and getting involved, rubbing life on life, shoulder on shoulder with people. 
That's the example of Jesus. That's how Jesus wants to, to live our lives. And it doesn't always have to be so dramatic like that. Um, in fact, we're going to be encouraging you to think in your own families, with our, with our spouses, with our kids. Are there places where we're just standing back kind of aloof, where we ought to be in there? Maybe a father, you need to be in there on your knees playing with your kids or putting them on your lap, reading them a book. Why do kids love that so much? It's because we're being Jesus to them. We're following his example of getting involved in their lives. It's like the uh, CEO I heard about of a manufacturing plant that once every two weeks he goes down onto the operating plant floor and he works in the assembly line for the morning. Four full hours. How do you think the, the, the assembly line workers feel about their boss? Every other week gets there and spends the morning Try, he takes a different position on the assembly line every week so that he understands it, but he does it. And during the break time, what does he do? Run back to his office and answer his emails? No. Goes into the break room and chats with the, with the guys that work the assembly line. Why is he a legend? Why is he a hero to them? Why would they do anything for their CEO? It's because he's modeling that breathtaking example of Jesus. And God wants each of us to do the same in our lives. And we're going to take a minute here to, to do that, to examine how can we live that out in our lives. In our work, I think there's a specific application for everyone. Maybe you're a homeschool mom, but maybe either God will speak to you about some way you need to get more involved. Maybe your child has a certain passion for dinosaurs or knitting or something and and you've been seeing them pursue that but now God's spirit will move you to say oh I I'm going to find out a little bit about dinosaurs and get some books give my son let him explore that maybe it's your daughter interested in dinosaurs um, that you're going to get on your knees you're going to get your hands a little bit dirtier draw a little bit closer to them into their world and they'll love it because everybody loves Jesus' example. Or maybe it's at your work, where there's a specific way that, that you've been leading, but the Lord will put on your heart, oh, I need to lead by example. I need to go and, maybe I need to work a shift, as some of these people are doing, to really understand what they're going through. But I'm confident God will show you. And just know that as you do that, as you follow Jesus' breathtaking example, that he will bless it. And in some way, he will exalt you, bless you, because he's promised that. Just as Jesus humbled himself, let go of his rights, when we do the same, God is pleased by it and will long to reward us in some way in this present life, or maybe it'll be in the life to come. But I can promise you... <coughs> as the word promises, that God will see it and will reward it someday. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus and his example. Thank you that we have the Bible, Lord, to, 
to see how he lived like that with his disciples and with people, sharing stories all the time with them that would raise questions and cause them to want to interact with him, that he was always rubbing shoulders with people and the way he discipled his disciples. And when he rose from the dead, he didn't just appear to his disciples, but he, they were out fishing and he, he cooked a meal for them, cooked some fish and was waiting for them on the beach. He didn't stand aloof and tell them to cook a meal so they could have some breakfast. He cooked the meal. And Lord, we know it was, must have been an amazing meal. And Lord, help each of us as we think about our own lives how to apply this, that you'd give us wisdom to see how we can follow your beautiful example and in so doing bring you glory and honor and be a light to the world that you want us to be. Pray this for your name and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.